Welcome to Afterthoughts, everybody. This is our debut topic talk episode where we dig into a film or TV-related topic and share our related personal experiences and insights. I'm John, and in this episode, we're talking about South by Southwest. This is actually part one of a two-part series. But before we begin, I should note, I'm not a big film festival guy. So I brought in our resident film festival fiend, Michael Dixon. What's up, John? I'm, I'm still in a, a little bit of a daze from eight straight days of movies while having a full-time job that was very busy this past week with certain bank failures, but I'm ready to go. Ready to go. I got a good night's sleep last night. I'm good to go. Great. I'm sure Dixon's eight crazy nights are way better than Adam Sandler's are. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I'm excited to get into it. So why don't we start by setting some stage here? Let's give the folks out there a little idea. What, what exactly is South by Southwest? South by Southwest is three festivals within the same festival. There's the film festival, the music festival, and the interactive festival, which is basically a place for tech bros to go jerk each other off. Yeah, I've never really understood that part of it. It's like, oh, you want to listen to some startup bro who's done nothing important except raise lots of venture capital money? Not my thing, for sure. But with me being a, a film nerd, I always like to check out the film festival side of things. Um, if it's an eight-day-long festival, film is pretty much the whole time, which is fun. There's so many movies in the festival that you have eight days to go check out stuff. There are multiple screenings of all the movies. It's mostly in downtown, but a little all over the city, so um, it's a lot of fun. Are these movies all the big blockbusters? Are they indie films? Are there shorts as well? Yeah, so... This year, there were 110 feature films showing at the festival and 63 shorts. I saw 19 feature films and 10 shorts. So even somebody who's going crazy and trying to see as much as they can, it's like you really still can't get a full picture of the festival, even if you're going to everything. Like It's not even really possible to see half of what's showing. The, the festival is kind of broken up into different categories, but it's a lot of stuff that is independent stuff that's premiering at South by for the first time, trying to get distribution in theaters or online or wherever that may be. There are some studio films that show at South by that premiere there, like Dungeons and Dragons was the opening night film oh, yeah. at South by um, Tetris showed at, at South by this year. So there is some stuff like that where studios are trying to get buzz around their movie and they'll release it at a festival to try to get some enthusiasm around it and some word of mouth. But for the most part, it's pretty small, independent stuff. There are some movies that have shown at previous festivals, such as Sundance, that are showing again and there's stuff that's premiering at South by for the first time. So considering I'm somebody who hasn't really gone to film festivals in my life, it's been something that I only really recognize that they're happening because traffic intensifies. Yes. <laughs> um, how, what, what exactly do you get out of going to South by Southwest? What are the things you look for? And what's something you would tell somebody who's like, I don't know if I really want to go to a festival. Should I or not? Yeah. This sounds like a very personal question, John, oh, as, a, yeah. as <laughs> someone who has refused to ever come to a festival with me. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. So, I mean, I always like to kind of stay up on current film and, and what's out. And I, I like seeing a lot of new stuff that comes out. And the festival is a good place to get exposure to a lot of things in a short period of time, some of which, you know, maybe will come out later in the year. Everything Everywhere All at Once premiered at South by last year and then had a huge theatrical run, won Best Picture, all that. So there's some stuff that you'll be able to see later in the year, but a lot of times you go see something at South by and you never hear of it again. I've seen a lot of great movies at festivals that like that would be the only chance I would ever have to see that movie. You can just see a lot of interesting, creative new films that are doing a lot of cool shit. And maybe you'll get lucky and that movie gets big and picked up and it's on HBO next month or it's in theaters, but sometimes they just disappear. So I just think it's cool to be able to have that opportunity to see lots of new stuff and 
experience new things. From all the chatter I've seen from other friends who go to South by, it is to see like Dungeons and Dragons or like these bigger features that are coming yeah. out. And I try to avoid those for the most part. I try to go see the smaller stuff. It's like, one, I don't, I probably don't even want to see Dungeons and Dragons, but two, if I do, I'll have many opportunities to do so later down the line. And I don't want to waste that opportunity at that festival to see a hidden gem that I'll never hear about again. In addition to going to the movies, are there other events like Q&As or the discussions with the filmmakers after things that really give you more insight into what was made or the personal notes behind it? Because that's the one thing that keeps me away from going to see certain movies is like if I mm. show up and see like an indie film, I want to like engage more with filmmaking. I like seeing local filmmakers. I like seeing small filmmakers uh -huh. on stage getting to, to voice their things because Dungeons and Dragons is next door blaring big sounds and whatever. Yeah. <laughs> um, it, it's just, that's the extra thing that pulls me into a festival experience to feel like I'm part of a community. It depends on the screen you go to, but the vast majority of them there's going to be a Q&A with the director, maybe some of the cast, some of the production team. I don't always stay for the Q&As. My main goal is to see as many movies as I can. So I'm kind of planning out how can I hit up as many movies as I want to. And I typically value quantity over quality in that situation where you just don't know what you're going to get when you're going into these movies, right? And so there's some that I read the description like, oh, that sounds badass. I want to try to see that. But if it means I'm only seeing two movies that day instead of three or four, then I usually will err on the side of seeing more things because I want to get more opportunity. So sometimes if a Q&A, you know, it's 20 minutes tacked onto the end of the screening and I want to jump out and see something else, maybe I won't stick around. It's obviously interesting to see these people get up there so excited to have their films be at South By and to really enjoy that opportunity of speaking with the audience. It's pretty cool. There are also panels and stuff like that that I think are more for industry people. You know, I don't want to go sit for an hour and listen to Bill Shatner talk. You know, I don't care. Um, <laughs> but that stuff is there, too. So if, if that's your thing and you want to go hear movie people talk, you absolutely can do that. Yeah. So you're talking about quantity. How much does it cost, Dixon? What exactly is the strategy for entering South by Southwest? Am I paying per ticket or yeah. how does this work? So there's different ways to do it. Um, you can buy a, a film badge, which gets you primary access into every screening. That's how most people do it. But that's like $800 for the festival. That's really expensive. Um, you know, everybody that's there professionally has a badge. Um, if you're interested in more aspects of, of the festival, not just film, you can get a platinum badge that gets you priority access into everything. Music, interactive, all that. That's like two grand. Damn. Fuck that. Fuck that shit. <laughs> <laughs> Holy um, shit. A film badge also gets you secondary access into other festivals. So if you want to go to a concert or go to an interactive thing, you can do that with a film badge, but it, uh, you know, you're only getting secondary entrance after the people that have those specific badges for those events. What I do is really great for locals that live in Austin. If you have an Austin zip code, you can buy a wristband that they go on sale maybe a month before the festival. And it's 120 bucks and you get secondary access into every movie. Secret is that most screenings don't fill up. So you can pretty much get in. I only missed out on three screenings this year. Uh, two of them were for the same movie at a different time that I tried to go see. But, you know, for the most part, I could get into whatever I wanted with secondary access. It's 120 bucks. You go to as many movies as you want. They also sell single tickets to each screening. It's 15 bucks or so to get in. So if you're thinking... You know, maybe I'll check out a few films, but I don't know that I want to be real dedicated to going to enough of them to make it worth dropping 120 bucks on a wristband. You can do that and you're the last person in to the screenings. But again, most of the screenings have seats, so you may not be in the best seat in the house, but you'll probably get in. It's a good way to do it if you live in town and you're like, oh, yeah, it'd be fun to go see three or four movies at the festival. 
then buying single tickets is a great way to go. Yeah, I, I ended up doing that this time around. I bought one ticket to go and see a movie. We both were actually at that movie, which we can talk about we later. Were. But yeah, that was definitely more of due to time constraints on my end and not knowing if I could commit fully to getting a wristband and going to see those things. So that was great. I know there's also like an opportunity if you are a local who wants to volunteer that, that you can earn like a badge that way. Yeah, I don't know how much time you have to volunteer, but I know if, if you volunteer, they'll give you a badge for the next year's festival. But I've just never looked into how much time that would be. And I'm like, I, uh, fuck, I could like you could probably just make more money working during that time and then just buy a badge for for next year, you know, or just like get a wristband or single tickets if you want to be a part of it. So, yeah, still shout out to the volunteers out there who do dedicate oh, their time and help with that. All right. Well, we talked a little bit about the way that these different entry points work. Now, are there any other kind of strategy points you have for approaching the film festival? You know, you have your list of what movies are coming out. You have your wristband ready. <laughs> well, what else you got for us, Dixon? Yeah. So I think there are, there are a few other things to keep in mind. Number one is pick a part of town you want to be in during the day and stay in that area. You know, there's a lot of stuff downtown. And then there are some theaters south of the river as well. Uh, Draft House, South Lamar, Zach Theater and Rollins all have screenings going pretty much all day. So you can kind of be downtown or south of the river or like the screening we went to was actually at Austin Film Society, which is in North Austin. And that's a great place to go if you want to just kind of not deal with the hustle and bustle of the festival, but you want to go see some movies that are screening at South by, like they call it that South by satellite venue and they screen two or three South by movies a day there. So that's a cool place to, to go if you want to do that. But I usually recommend thinking about it on a day by day basis. If there are like a bunch of movies in the downtown area that you want to see, try to stay down there. The other things to think about are the size of the, the venues that you're looking at. And so, you know, the Paramount is kind of the premier venue in downtown Austin. It's huge. It has 1,100 seats in it. It has a big upper balcony. Like there's a lot of space in there. The lines are going to be wrapping around the block to go into movies there. But that doesn't mean that you won't get in. If it's like a Wes Anderson premiere or something like that, don't try. But like for the most part, if they're showing a movie at the Paramount and it's not something that there's going to be like a rabid fan base for, then you can probably get in. Then the, the other larger ones, there's the stateside right next door to the Paramount. And then south of the river, um, Zach Theater is a really cool place to see a movie. I don't know. If, I think the I've only time they show movies are at South By. It's usually like a, a theater. An actual a, a stage theater, production. Like, like stage production theater. Yeah. Um, I, I've only been there to see South by movies, but it's a really big auditorium. It's a cool place to go. And then Rollins, it's on uh, like auditorium shores and they have a, a lot of seats in there. So those are good spots where like the odds that you can't get in are going to be pretty low. Alamo Draft House and Violet Crown are kind of the smaller ones. Those are a little bit dicier. Think about things that way, like trying to target the bigger venues if you can. Sometimes like, you know, if there's just something I want to see at Violet Crown, I'll, I'll just go and like, you know, hope I can get in. And then the kind of in line with that, don't don't wait in line. Waiting in lines for chumps, it's stupid. Don't do that. Like, don't waste your time at the festival standing around, you know, getting to a screening early to make sure you get in. Go see something else or hang out and get a beer for a minute and then try to get into the next one. So many people waste so much time standing for hours in these lines. Yeah, people get caught up searching for that fabled center seat in the center row. I am one of those chumps, though, Dixon. How, how dare you? Uh, don't do it. Up, you don't have to be one early. of those chumps. Don't wait in line. I showed up a little early. I thought that AFS might be a little more busy, and then it wasn't at all. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, anecdotally, can can attest to that being true. Yeah. I mean, AFS, you're definitely always getting in. Like, yeah. there's, no, there's no way you're going to get turned away if you go to Austin Film Society. 
Yeah. Well, awesome. Thanks for all the tips on where we can go, what we can kind of do to, to help optimize the experience there, make sure that nobody's wasting time when they get into these festivals and they just have a good experience. Let's dig in, talk about highlights from the festival for you. I'm really curious. Like, obviously, I want to know what hit the highest notes for you. What were mm. things that like really resonated? But I'm also really curious if you have insight into what's overblown. Like, what, what are these other movies that are too hyped up or that didn't land? Yeah. So, uh, like I said, I saw 19 uh, features and, t- and 10 shorts. Um, there, there's just so many options at South by. Like, you know, there's all kinds of different movies there. South by tends to focus more on comedy and um, like music documentaries than other festivals do. And so, you know, you, there's opportunities to see more films in those genres that you may not see at other festivals, particularly comedy. Like a lot of festivals kind of shy away from that or kind of look down upon that as a lower genre. Um, and there's a lot of a lot of big comedies that premiere at South by every year that, that are fun to see. Um, the my favorite movie that I saw was the only film that I saw in the Midnighters section of the, the festival. The Midnighter section is described on their website as scary, funny, sexy, controversial, eight provocative after dark features for night owls and the terminally curious. Uh, <laughs> terminally curious. Terminally curious. <laughs> um, yeah, so my favorite movie that I saw kind of blew me away. It's called Aberrance. Um, it is a, it's like a 75 minute movie and it's this horror thriller kind of thing made in and, and set in Mongolia. Um, I've never seen a Mongolian film before. Supposedly, horror movies are actually not very popular in Mongolia, according to the producer of the film who was there during the Q&A. And so they're kind of trying to get um, like international buzz around it before they kind of pitch it even in their home country. Um, so that was kind of interesting. Um, the, the filmmaker actually dedicated the movie to Darren Aronofsky, which I thought was, was odd. Apparently, he's like doesn't know Aronofsky, but he just loves his movies and was inspired a lot by him. So Wow. The the end of the movie, the end title card says for Darren Aronofsky. It's like, oh, that's that's interesting. But essentially this movie, it's it's very like it changes perspectives a lot and it's kind of hard to f- know what's going on for a while. It's this couple who is driving out into the wilderness and they kind of unpack at this cabin in the middle of nowhere. And you're not really sure what's going on. They don't really seem to get along very well. And the husband keeps trying to get the wife to take her medicine and she won't do it. And you're kind of unsure if she is, you know, being tortured by her husband or if she legitimately has like a mental illness and the husband is, uh, you know, kind of not knowing how to handle it. And they seem to have gone to this faraway location to, you know, get away from everything and, and to focus on her getting better. Meanwhile, they have a neighbor next door who lives alone. He's really the only person in the vicinity. And he doesn't really know them very well, but they're, they're very reserved and they don't really want to talk to him. And he hears like horrible things coming out of that house at night. And he thinks the husband is potentially beating the wife. And he's you know, kind of curious as to figure out what's going on. And the movie kind of goes from there and it shifts perspectives between characters and it, you know, kind of changes who the protagonists and villains are as the movie goes along. It's a lot of handheld cinematography that was really fucking impressive, like steady cam following characters running around all, all over the place. Um, it's, it's a beautiful looking movie and um, just kind of kind of blew me away. I, I don't really know, you know, what the release plans are, or if it will be available later down the line, but just a really intense thriller that keeps ratcheting up as it goes. And it's just so immersive, given the 
the moving camera and the way it's shot. There are some scenes where it's like following characters behind their head. And so you can't really see their expressions and how they're reacting to things, but you can see how other characters are reacting to Ooh, them. Interesting. And yeah, it's, it was a fascinating film. I, I, I really dug it. One of the last movies that I saw at the festival and I'm, I'm really glad I ended up catching it. Yeah. I was going to ask with like that mention of handheld camera work and all of those, what the kind of texture of the film is, is there like a really dense atmosphere to it? Is it claustrophobic or dreamlike or is it None of those things. It's just something its own that, that feels unique and fresh. Yeah, it's kind of a combination of claustrophobic and not be, because it's it's out in the middle of nowhere in this be, the beautiful Mongolian mountains. Um, and But there are scenes that take place in these small cabins that feel very claustrophobic. But then you get outside and it's just gorgeous and you feel the vastness of the area. And so um, it kind of goes back and forth between feeling claustrophobic and feeling very open i hope they get that buzz that they wanted i want to see this yeah yeah so that was the movie that you you were glad you saw what's a movie that you're not glad you saw yeah so there was actually only one movie that i didn't like uh, that i saw at the festival I, like south life for the most part you know it's, it's very rare that you see bad movies um you may not see like the best movie that you've ever seen i feel like most movies fall in the kind of like b plus to b minus range for me where like they're they're solid. They're good, but maybe not really great. Aberrance definitely is is incredible. Like it it supersedes that. Um, and I saw my number one movie of 2019 at South by, which is For Sama, which is still my, in my opinion, the the best documentary that I've ever seen, and, and really blew me away. But it's rare that you see something bad. And I did see one this year that I didn't like called With Love and a Major Organ. It's kind of a supernatural movie about uh, this woman who feels everything in a world that is overly rational and not in touch with emotions as much as she is. And she's going through a lot of stuff in her life and her friends don't really understand why she's reacting emotionally to things and having these problems. And then she starts falling for this guy that, that she meets who is, is very rational, buttoned down. It, it almost feels like, did you ever see that Christian Bale movie, Equilibrium, where like everybody, the government is giving everybody drugs to calm them down and to like not feel emotional and to kind of make society more productive. Everybody kind of has that type of air about them. And she decides that she's feeling too much. Life is too painful. And so she rips her heart out. Whoa. And mails it to the guy that she was attracted to who has rejected her. Basically Van Gogh's him? <laughs> yes. Uh, he gets her heart in the mail and decides to replace his heart with hers. Oh. And then he starts feeling everything that she's been feeling. It's an interesting concept that I feel like could could be good, something like that, but just didn't really work for me. I felt like the characters just weren't developed and, and I kind of doubt it's going to get distribution after this. You know, maybe it'll be available streaming somewhere, but didn't love it. Wouldn't watch it again. I want to ask a few more questions here just to get a good feel of what this movie is. Cause yeah. it, it sounds on the surface interesting to me. And that's why I saw it. It's like, okay, yeah, that's the like two sentence plot summary on the South by Southwest site. That sounds interesting. I'll go check it out. Yeah. Um, it, it sounds like something I would see in like a Yodorowsky film or uh, even maybe uh -huh. a Cronenberg, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, um, yeah. Who, who's director for this? Or like, is it somebody that's been known and has no, a certain style? No, it's kind or? of an unknown director. I hadn't seen any of her work before, but um, yeah, I, I don't know. It just, uh, I feel like it didn't kind of take the side premise far enough and the effects weren't very good oh, I see. and the emotional beats kind of just didn't didn't hit for me and and at any point in the movie you only have one character who actually feels like a 
human person. You know, you have the, the you're following this woman through the first half of the movie and then she gives her heart to this other guy and then she becomes like basically an unfeeling robot and then he turns into this person who feels everything. And I, I don't know, I feel like it's trying to grapple with like childhood trauma and, and some other things that are, are, are interesting ideas. For me, it just kind of didn't come together in a way that I, I would have liked to see. All right. Well, is there anything that's middle road for you? Yeah. I mean, there were a lot of movies that I was like a B or B minus that I was like, yeah, this is solid. You know, I'm glad I saw this movie, but probably won't seek it out again. A lot of documentaries fall into that group. Maybe the one that kind of stands out to me was this music doc called Revival 69, the concert that rocked the world. I wanted the Beatles thing to end. I felt as though I couldn't breathe if it went on any longer. We got this phone call that there was a rock and roll revival show and that Chuck was going to be there and Jerry Lee was going to be there and up the great rockers were still living. Yeah, the doors were top of the bill. There were a lot of historic things happened that night. The ninth wonder of the world, Alice Cooper! A lot of tension going on. The excitement was amazing. This was far too much ahead of its time. I felt like it was just kind of a missed opportunity. It was um, about this big music festival in Toronto in September of 1969. It kind of got overshadowed by Woodstock and kind of people ended up forgetting about it. but. Uh, D.A. Pennebaker, who was, you know, like a premier music documentarian who got really famous for uh, I think it's called No Way Home, the Bob Dylan documentary. That may not be that. Something like that. He's made lots of big, famous kind of cinema verite, gritty documentaries. And he heard about this festival and was like, shit, I got to go film. This, this is going to be huge. He got a crew out there, filmed the whole thing and then couldn't get anybody to buy the movie and like almost bankrupted his production company. And so there's all this footage from it. And then this director decided, hey, I want to make a documentary about that festival. I'm going to get D.A. Pennebaker to come on and be a producer. and I'm going to take his footage and put it in the movie. His documentary was more about how the festival came together. It was a crazy story about how it was going to fail and nobody was going to show up and they were going to have to cancel it. And on a last second flyer, the 22-year-old who was running the festival and putting it together decided to call John Lennon and see if he could get him to come to the festival. <laughs> oh, my God. So it's the story about how this all came together. And I feel like the first half of the documentary was pretty fascinating about how this, this all happened and the logistics of it. There's a lot of scenes that are animated as the people are talking about what they were doing. It's kind of cool. But then they get to the concert itself, and they would show some pictures of it, but then it, they just overlay like talking heads of musicians that were there or of people who put on the festival, they're talking about like the historical significance of it. And I'm just like, can we, I just want to watch Chuck Berry. Can yeah. we just get back to that? Like <laughs> stop cutting away to these people talking about how cool it was to be there and show me how cool it was to be there. I just want to see this footage. And so I almost wish they had just released the initial D.A. Pennebaker film because I'm sure there would be an audience for that now. Yeah. Even if there wasn't at the time. There are all these... You know, it's like the it was the first performance ever of the Plastic Ono Band and like, you know, all these big acts that are there and, you know, they play these tiny little 10 second snippets and then they cut to some drummer talking about how cool it was to back up Chuck Berry. And I'm just like, I, 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 like, just fucking show me the show me the music. I just want to see it. You know, that sounds very similar to uh, to the other documentary that we watched, which was uh, a disturbance in the force. <sighs> In 1978, Lucasfilm made a huge mistake they prefer we all forget. The Star Wars Holiday Special. Lucasfilm is still saying Mark Wish would talk about that. I, you 
nobody is allowed to mention this. No, you don't remember. It is so bad. It's not good. Yes. One about the Star Wars holiday special and how it was made because there was like just a, a lot of talking heads in that. Don't get me so wrong. So many talking heads in that. Some documentaries, I'm like cool with it if the talking heads are fascinating enough. Like mm-hmm. if the person really has some kind of quirkiness or charisma to them. But other people were just kind of like there to shake their heads at what happened and that other kind of stuff. And so right. it feels like it's interesting to watch a documentary cannibalize itself uh-huh. in favor of a certain style that becomes easier to do. Yeah, I definitely agree. Like, oh, this will be interesting. The holiday special is this massive beast that everybody knows about, but nobody wants to talk about. And mm-hmm. the the concept of the documentary is like, all right, I'm, I'm here for this. This should be cool. And then the whole movie is cut to different talking heads the entire time. And I got bored with it by the end. The director in the Q&A said, you know, oh, well, I'm not really not finished with this yet. I wanted to premiere it at South by and get some buzz before I decided to see if like George Lucas or Mark Hamill would be a part of it. I don't know. Maybe that's a good idea. I don't know. But maybe they'll be able to get Mark Hamill. I doubt they'll get George to talk about it. And they talked to like some celebrities that loved it, like Paul Shear and Kevin Smith and people like that. It was yeah. kind of cool to hear from them. But uh, he was like, yeah, you know, we might do some more of that. There's a guy who like put on a theatrical production of it. And it was like, yeah. like a Rocky horror type thing. It's like, oh, that sounds really cool. Why didn't you talk to that guy? You know about that guy and he's yeah. not in the movie. I feel like you're only going to get one shot with the, with any documentary. There's always a chance it's only one shot to do whatever this is. Um, right. With the exception of like Fire Festival, where all of the streaming services just fucking <laughs> There are fought. like six documentaries to, yeah, about that. Yeah, just really trying to make that happen. The Star Wars holiday special, nobody wants to watch multiple documentaries about that. Or, you know, this music festival where you have this unique footage, nobody wants mm. to try to see something that has that same, because you're just going to see that same footage again. So right. it's it's unfortunate to have seen those and, and been like, there were a few things that could have been better with this, for sure. Revival 69 was better than, than the holiday special documentary, but it, man, if you just get out of your own way, stop tripping over yourself and just play the concert. I just yep. want to see that. Love the stuff leading up to the concert. That was really cool to see how it all happened. But then just show me the concert. I, I don't know why they decided not to do it that yeah, way. Yeah, it could have been like, what, the next Summer of Soul kind of thing? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so. I mean, that was that was kind of what I was wanting out of it. I fucking love Summer of Soul. That movie is so good. And I felt like this movie could have been, I don't know that it could have achieved the highs of that. That's really hard to do. But he was only using that footage to service the purpose of what he was wanting to do with his own movie. It's like, hey, it's his movie. But I was just like, oh, man, like, just get. Get away. Let me let me watch little Richard go ham on stage. It's getting harder for me to enjoy documentaries recently just because it feels like there's a saturation of how many there are because it's it's easy. I don't want to like reduce mm-hmm. the work of a documentarian, but it's relatively easy to just get somebody on screen and have them talk rather than, you know, stage direction, shot blocking, all of those other things that you would think about in a traditional narrative film. Yeah. And some documentaries, you know, it's like you already know what you're going to cover topic wise. It just depends on how you render it. Watching City Hall for four oh, hours yeah. of footage of just like how Boston works. I'm sure to anybody listening, that sounds like it's the most grueling thing, but it's fascinating. And it's so, uh, oh, so yeah, it so such good. an em- empathetic power to it. Then you get something where the director is too excited to tell you the story and doesn't think too much about how they can do it, how they should do it. Having that stage producer that's like done an adaptation of mm-hmm. the holiday special Maybe get that person to actually do like dramatic reenactments of some of the stories people were telling, or yeah. maybe even just film that part, show their yeah, yeah, show their actual production. You know, it only gets you so far when the talking heads come in. Not the band, obviously, but yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. It, it's interesting. I feel like uh, for the most part, I don't know, maybe seventy to eighty percent of documentaries all have the same format. You can see a movie 
that is about a fascinating topic that isn't a fascinating movie, right? Because it's doing the same structure that every documentary does. Current interviews with a bunch of old people talking about what happened at, at the time. And then like, if they're lucky showing footage from whatever the thing was that they're commenting on and like that, that, that can work, but I feel like it can only, that type of documentary can only be so good. There's a ceiling on what you can do there. That may be a good segue to talk about some documentaries that I watched that I, I really liked. Yeah. My favorite documentary that I saw was an Australian film called Last Stop Larima. When I first came here, it was a very close-knit community. Everybody got along really well. Now we, uh, well, we don't really associate. Little towns, they're all the same. It's, if it's, oh, so-and-so done this, so-and-so done that. It's completely out of character for Paddy. He's set in his ways. He, um, he has a strict routine where he attends the pub has eight beers a day and comes home before dark. Based on that and our comprehensive search efforts, we're treating it as suspicious. Larimah is spelled L-A-R-R-I-M-A-H. It is a town in the bush in Australia that has a population of 11. Okay, 11? 11 people. What, is that a family? <laughs> <laughs> um, somehow this town has several businesses in it. There's like a meat pie shop and a, a pub. And, you know, I guess it... it used to be kind of a, a truck stop kind of a destination and then people moved away and they weren't having a lot of new people coming into the city and it just kind of died but there were still 11 people there and all of a sudden one of them just disappears walks home from the pub doesn't come back and nobody knows what happened to him Whoa. and it's it's like a true crime documentary i'm usually not a true crime kind of person i feel like that's another genre that i think kind of always happens the same way in the same structure and i just get kind of bored with it but I thought this was fascinating. Um, there luckily was a news crew that went to Larima and profiled a lot of the citizens there a couple years before this guy went missing. And so there's all this footage from a couple years before this happened. And the movie starts out um, kind of like, you know, this, oh, this seems like this great little town of 11 people where everybody knows each other and everybody gets along. And isn't this wonderful? And then as you as you talk to the people more, there's there's present day interviews with these people and this news footage. It, you know, the, the veil of pleasantness gets ripped away pretty quickly. And you realize that actually all of these people hate each other in this oh, wow. little town of 11, <laughs> now 10 people. Now this guy's gone missing and basically everybody hates each other and everybody had problems with this one guy and they all have motives to kill him. And the, the director is interviewing all these people and trying to figure out what actually happened. It's very difficult to do. So none of these people will talk to the cops. Um, apparently there's like a very, maybe even more so than in, in America, what I could tell from the documentary, just like a visceral hatred of, of police. And like these people don't want to talk to the cops, even if like some of them were really good friends with this guy, they won't help them. And so the, the filmmaker is probably getting better information than the cops were as he's going through and talking to these people and getting honest reactions from them about what's going on. They all have their own theories. They're blaming other people in the town. Oh, this guy definitely did it. No, no, she did it for sure. <laughs> oh my gosh. And it's just, it's just a fascinating profile of this small little community. And they all kind of want to run the town differently than everybody else does. They're always like battling over squabbles. I, I thought it was fascinating. Uh, I really liked it. All of the people have these absurd backwoods Australian accents that are just absolutely wild like fargo level insane on the, <laughs> these accents and i liked the ending of the movie i think most true crime documentaries don't give you any answers and they're just like oh this is an interesting case we're gonna just talk to people and ask questions or we're gonna end it 
without having figured anything out. But in this case, the director actually does figure something out. It's not 100% definitive, but gives you a pretty good idea of what actually happened. Yeah, there's a, there's a tendency with those kind of documentaries to want to sensationalize it and keep it as vague as possible so that you have the window open for more content if you ever wanted to try to pump, right. which content is a dirty word for me. I don't really like <laughs> oh, uh, yeah. thinking about things as content, but um, <laughs> that's that's how it typically ends up being. It's always interesting to watch small town dynamics for start sure. to unfold. Uh, uh-huh. Just a cool social study <laughs> did you watch banshees of a sharon yet not yet i really want to that's on my list i'm gonna yeah. do it soon because very uh, good small town dynamics yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm eager to see it and then i wanted to call it one other documentary that i saw that was kind of breaking the form that that i liked a lot um it's a haitian documentary called kite zoa Three words. Kite spelled like kite, K-I-T-E space Z-O space A. Kitezoa. And it's a Haitian documentary about kind of Haitian culture around a lot of festivals that they have. And it's non-linear, not really much narrative. There's a lot of intense music. The sound design is incredible. And a lot of dancing and carnival celebrations. Talking about that in the context of Haitian culture as kind of being the first black republic in the Western Hemisphere and having democracy early on before they were kind of sabotaged by the U.S. and and other powerful entities. It touches on history a little bit, but mostly just focuses on kind of how the Haitian people express themselves currently through these festivals and dances and rituals that they do. And it was super cool, just a really enveloping experience, shot really well, the music was incredible. Less trying to feed you information and kind of just letting you live in this environment and experience Mm. what it's like to be at a massive Haitian festival. When we were talking earlier about documentaries and how they become formulaic, it's formulaic when they're relaying information. When Mm -hmm. it's an experiential documentary, much like yes. uh, you know, a music festival would be, it, it all comes down to like how it really does engross and engage you in that music and get you into that moment. Because there's something about not just watching other people experience something, but actually being being able to feel the energy through the screen and the sound. Uh, I, yeah, I see it was that. super cool. It was also 67 minutes long, so that was badass. Hey, there yeah. you go. <laughs> That's one thing too about film festivals is there are a lot of feature length films between. 60 and 80 minutes. Most movies now in the theater, you're like, all right, I'm strapping in for two hours and 20 minutes here. And at a festival, a lot of times it's, you know, because of budgets or just because a lot of times narratives don't need to be drawn out that long. You know, you can tell a really great story in 70 minutes and you don't need to drag it beyond that. So it's cool to see good movies that are are done in a shorter format. And it also gives you the opportunity to see more movies at, at a festival like that. Solid point made. And with that, we are out of time for this Talking Topics episode. Join us for part two of South by Southwest 2023 as Dixon dives deeper into his favorites from each category and tells us about films to look out for in the coming year. In the meantime, why not look up the movies we just discussed? You can find those titles in our episode description. Or if you already saw them at South by, let us know your afterthoughts. Check out theafterpod.transistor.fm for all the ways to reach out. And thanks for listening.